This is the World Bank's Infrastructure Podcast. Following on from our last episode, today we continue looking at shipping and our focus will be on digitalization. I'm sure you're all familiar with the Panama Canal. The canal spans 82 kilometers, an engineering marvel, and it took 10 years to build. It allows 14,000 ships a year to cross from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean, saving huge distances and untold weeks at sea. Of course, each vessel also pays a hefty toll of $50,000. In 2019, the Panama Canal and Maritime Authorities decided to upgrade to their new maritime single window, which relies on digitalization, and at one stroke, removed about 300,000 pieces of paper and saved over 3,000 man-hours every year. That's a lot of savings. And in the pandemic, digitalization has proved really important. The more digitalization of ports and shipping can help reduce queues of ships waiting to dock and unload across major ports, faster we will get the goods we're waiting for. Let's find out how countries should approach this change. Good morning and welcome. I am Rumin Islam, host of Tell Me How, And today, my guest is Martin Humphreys, expert on issues of transport connectivity and regional integration, specifically on the maritime sector. Martin will be speaking about how digitalization is transforming ports and the shipping industry. Welcome, Martin. Hi, Ramin. Thank you very much indeed. And it's a pleasure to be here. Lovely to have you. Martin, could we start by getting an idea of why Maritime transport is so important to the world's economies and to economic development in our client countries. Yes, um, by all means. Let's start with maybe the larger figures. It's fair to say that I think uh, four-fifths of global merchandise trade is now carried by the maritime sector. It's been growing approximately 3% a year since 1970 and amounted in 2019 to about 11 billion tonnes. It's projected to continue to grow, and although the pandemic has flattened the trend a little bit, the expectation is that it's going to be close to doubling by 2050. In terms of how it affects our daily lives, one of the sort of anecdotal comments that people make about the maritime sector is that uh, the maritime sector carries 90% of everything. So, you know, the clothes that you wear, the shoes that you wear, the food that you eat, the furniture you sit on, it's usually traveled by container ship um, from somewhere to somewhere before it comes to your door. And increasingly, As we've seen over the last 12 months, whenever you have friction within the maritime sector, it translates very quickly into uh, shortages on the shelves. You know, at the most serious end, that's uh, food insecurity and increased food prices in our client countries. At the more humorous end, you know, one of the concomitants or outcomes from the ever given blockage of the sewage canal was the risk that Europe might run out of toilet paper because China makes 25% of the world's toilet paper and apparently there were a number of large consignments held up at the entrance to the Suez Canal on their way to Europe. I was just going to add for our client countries particularly, the maritime sector is a crucial avenue for their international trade. And the relationship between you know, the maritime sector and the cost of that trade, whilst it isn't entirely clear, there has been an awful lot of work done uh, to indicate that um, a reduction or an improvement in the efficiency of the maritime gateway will have a direct impact on the cost of the international trade and obviously GDP, uh, imports and exports, incomes and prices within the countries. Let me pause there. Yes, thank you. I was going to say that it wasn't just a shortage of toilet paper that was worrying us. There were all kinds of shortages. You mentioned food, there were, you know, medicines, protective equipment, all sorts of things that depend on these ships getting to the ports and goods getting from there to us. And in terms of what you just said, 
transport costs have indeed been a very important factor in determining trade flows historically. So as it's so important to trade, both internal and external, I assume you know, there have been substantial innovations in technology, both for ships and for ports. And so I assume that you also require constant improvement of the physical infrastructure. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, probably the biggest change in the last 70 years has been the introduction of what's known in the industry as the standardized unit load. But outside the industry, it's the container. This was introduced in the mid-1950s by an American inventor, an entrepreneur by the name of Malcolm McLean. And um, prior to their introduction, ports historically had been noisy, dirty, extremely labor-intensive. And and, uh, because of the piece-rate nature of the work, had led to considerable poverty and and deprivation. Ultimately, it led to unionization and the protection of the workers, and, and that engendered a new set of problems. And the port was usually at that time in the heart of the city. So every major city of commerce would have a port um, at its heart, and that place would be a bustling network of narrow streets and vessels and longshoremen and stevedores carrying loads back and forth from the vessels, but also carrying loads individually sometimes from the port to retail and wholesale establishments. The introduction of the container actually revolutionized all that and realized uh, an emphasis on cost reduction that is ongoing. It allowed for the first time, a very smooth interchange with other modes. Just to give you an indication, in, I think, 1956 in New York, it took approximately 2.5 man-hours of work to move one ton. And that, every time you lifted it, so from the vessel to the pallet, it would be 2.5 man-hours per ton. And of course, if we're talking about 10 tons, it's 25 man-hours. Then the pallet gets lifted out and put on the key, and it's another 25 man-hours. And now that's done in two or three minutes in one container. So containers are much easier to pack than sacks, and they can also be lifted by cranes now, right? So you don't need those same laborers. Absolutely. Yes, it can be done in three minutes. The same work that had taken half a day and 50 men is now lifted out in one container, put on a truck and driven out of the port. And it it actually led to the movement of ports from the city centers to large open areas with good rail and road access. And the shipping industry also became much more capital intensive. So are we seeing that trend continue? Everything is becoming more capital intensive. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, the first vessels, the first container vessels, when they were introduced, carried about 500 containers. And then slowly, and that's in the early 60s. 20 years ago, the largest vessels were carrying six to 8,000 containers or equivalent containers. Uh, We call them 20-foot equivalent units in the industry. Now, the largest vessels carry 24,000 containers and are the length of four football pitches and almost a one football pitch across. And uh, to access and egress the main ports, that requires ports to expand both the depth of water that's available the strength of the key, the size of the crane, and the access infrastructure in order to shift those containers in and out of the port quickly. That places a considerable need for public investment in parallel to the investment in the vessel. And, you know, there is obviously a difficult calculation there, because although it reduces the cost of international trade, does it reduce it enough to justify the investment in uh, public investment terms that will essentially increase or reduce the cost margins for a private shipping line? That calculus isn't always done clearly uh, by the Port Authority. And in our client countries, obviously, that's somewhere that we help. So is there an estimate of uh, how much a country might gain 
from investing in its ports? At the level of the port, yes. I think it's much more difficult to uh, come up, partly because the industry is notoriously secretive on the rates it charges and how they vary from the premium routes, um, say between China and Europe or China and the West Coast and America, to those routes that essentially serve the smaller ports in our client countries. Despite the fact it's a network industry, unlike uh, you know, a public mail service, which obviously has a public good and charges the same rate to deliver a first-class letter anywhere, that isn't true of the shipping industry. And our client countries are disadvantaged uh, by distance and by volume. But what that disadvantage is, the, the lines are very cagey about revealing. Let's put it like that. All right. Well, let us go back to digitalization. Can you explain what that term encompasses here? And why is this so critical for the sector? What are the risks? And, and actually, could you also speak about the risks for our countries if they don't move on this digitalization path? Let me just paint you the historical picture. And I think that provides a nice background, if I may. When the vessel comes into a port, historically, the captain would have been required as soon as the gangplank is dropped. He will be met by a number of representatives from public agencies within the country and port in which he's calling. And he will declare what he's carrying on the vessel. He will he will declare the crew that he has. He will declare whether they're well or not. He will declare whether there's any personal effects that the crew is carrying. He will declare on whether there's any hazardous materials, and he will also declare what he's proposing to load and unload at that port. And all that was done by paper. He would also be met by the agent of the importer, who, for a range of different consignments potentially, who would also have a piece of paper indicating what they were expecting to receive. And this took quite a long period of time. I mean, it could take days. And then the vessel with the men employed themselves would then be berthed for anything up to a week whilst that cargo was unloaded by the day workers, the longshoremen or the stevedores. Digitalization, essentially in its simplest form, means the conversion of all that text and the paper-based transactions into an electronic format. This obviously brings significant savings. It can be done in advance. It reduces the amount of time required at the berth before you can start unloading to potentially nothing. It also, I think, removes the possibility of error. It removes the need for all those representatives to be there when the gangplank is dropped, and it can be done in advance. Unfortunately, it isn't something, despite the fact that it's now mandatory, it isn't something that's done in all ports yet. Uh, the International Maritime Organization standardized the format of the transfer of information, and it's now mandatory that all ports have to be able to receive this information in electronic format from ships by EDI, Electronic Data Interchange. And that's basically the first step in the digital roadmap. So, sorry, you've already saved several days with that first step. And we know from just reading the newspapers and how much it cost for the ever given to be stuck, that each day costs a lot to a number of different agents. Is that right? Let's just look at it from the vessel itself. I mean, if we're talking about a container vessel and not a particularly large one here, let's talk about one that carries maybe 5,000 containers. That's $50,000 a day. Every day it's sitting idle. Multiply that by the number of calls vessels will make in a port. And if you have each vessel waiting two and a half days, you're very quickly accumulating waiting time costs of up to a quarter of a million dollars. And we did a study in Tanzania in 2013 where we looked at the cost implications of ships waiting at anchorage. 
and there the annual estimate was $252 million, which is similar to what we see now actually in some of the South African ports. Okay, these are large numbers. So, so you mentioned this uh, one aspect of efficiency, improving with digitalization, the paperwork and the processes that you have to do, they're done fast. Are there some other advantages? Does it reduce corruption, rent-seeking, because you have fewer people, fewer bureaucrats to deal with or agents? Let's be kind and say in, in its purest form, it removes the possibility of errors in the duplicate papers. It certainly reduces the time. It reduces the risks associated with individuals not being able to make a particular time or appointment. Uh, the ship's agent, if he's not there, his consignment would not be unloaded. If the customs officer doesn't get there, then you know at a particular point in time, there would be a delay until the captain was cleared to start unloading. And at the time of, you know, within a pandemic, moving over to an electronic system obviously removes all the risks associated with a breakdown of availability of key staff at the key. So it improves the resilience of the system as well by moving over to a paper-based system. Could you explain a bit more what you mean by resilience? You mentioned the pandemic, but are there other areas where it might improve, other situations where it might improve resilience? Well, if you think about the, the number of paper-based transactions, obviously there are the governance implications are removed by moving over to an electronic data interchange system or, or a digitalization, a digital system. Moving over to a digital system, digitalized system, assuming that you have consistent power supply and assuming that you have understanding on the part of the operators, you essentially get a stronger system that is more efficient in terms of cost and time, but is also more robust to interference. The pandemic gives us an excellent example about how the resilience of a system can be tested by an unexplained or unexpected event. Uh, another unfortunate recent tragedy was the explosion in Beirut port in, on August the 4th. Now, at the time, that halted all the operations in the port, but because the container terminal was a little bit further away, they had an electronic system in place. They were able to get back up and running in some form within days. I see. So, and I assume you hedge against any kind of risk, you know, it could be weather-related ones as well, right? You're better able to manage through digitalization. Yeah. As long as your power supply doesn't go down because of the cyclone or the hurricane, yes. That's a very important point indeed. So I think our listeners might be interested in hearing about all the port and ship infrastructure that's involved in you know, delivering goods. Could you describe just for us a, a logistical chain for some goods that we use every day? Yes, by all means. I mean, I, I jokingly mentioned earlier about the maritime sector carrying 90% of everything, but the illustration that possibly comes to mind most quickly, and, and this displays possibly my preferences um, in the evening when I'm relaxing after work, is let's talk about a bottle of Pinotage, you know, red wine from South Africa. Here, uh, the only thing that comes from South Africa to a certain extent is the wine itself. And the bottles are usually sourced in China. The corks I think I'm writing saying 80% of cork production around the world comes from southern Spain, Portugal, and part of North Africa, and are dominated by Portuguese companies. So undoubtedly, the corks will come from there. The eco-labeling that goes on most wines now, particularly those that are being sold at a relative premium, comes from either specialist producers in the United States or, or also in China. 
So they're all taken by container down to South Africa and they're taken out of the port of Durban up to Stellenbosch. Uh, the vineyard loads its wine into the bottle, puts the, the American label on it and the Portuguese cork and sends it back in the container to Stellenbosch. It comes back over from Stellenbosch to possibly via Northern Europe to Savannah, Baltimore, and then goes from Baltimore onto a train or truck to the wholesaler where it's unladed. And then from there, it'll go on another smaller distribution uh, vehicle to Rodman's or Whole Foods. And eventually, you or I will buy it one evening and enjoy a nice glass of South African phenotage. That's amazing. I did not realize that so many ships and ports were involved in that bottle of wine getting to me. So when I see all these ships, they're more than ships that pass in the night. They're actually collectively doing something. Yes, absolutely. There's another famous example that economists often quote as an illustration of how global trade takes place. And that's, you know, I think there was a publication a few years ago that was well known, Travels of a T-shirt in the Global Economy. Essentially, it's the same thing. The, <laughs> the cotton is grown in, in Texas. It goes to China to be processed comes back to the United States to have the, the graphic printed on it, and then it is distributed elsewhere in the world from the United States, all by container, but, but yes. Very interesting. So let's go to some of the obstacles that there may be in a port or a country to commence its uh, digitalization journey. Is there a logical sequence? How should we think about this? There is, and the complexity gets more difficult as you travel down the roadmap. We talked a little bit earlier about the mandatory requirements, and it's possible for those mandatory requirements to be met to a certain extent by the port authority and the stakeholders within the port themselves. So the EDI interchange is between the vessel and the port authority and the other public agencies. If it goes through one channel, if you like, then it's known as a maritime single window. When you start linking that to uh, the other clearance agencies uh, via a port community system, then you need to ensure that all the agencies understand how it fits together. You need to ensure that there is trust uh, and a willingness to share certain amounts of information, but also no suspicion that information can be accessed by third parties. Um, and there needs to be a willingness to work with the private sector because they're a key part of that. Now, often, in some of our countries, there is a certain silo mentality between the Port Authority and the Customs Agency, for instance, that precludes, based usually on a limited understanding of how to work together, that precludes the introduction of the more appropriate and complex technologies as we go forward. So you need political commitment, usually at the highest level, to be you know, above ministry level, to ensure that, that you have a clear commitment and a clear understanding on the parts of all that this is the journey you want to embark on. And then you need to ensure that the people within the different agencies have the capacity to uh, implement, but also to understand what the technology is telling them and what the technology could potentially allow them to do. As one example, you know, the movement of ivory through the ports of East Africa is a known problem. And the International Maritime Organization requires all containers to be scanned before they're placed on the vessel. So many of the port authorities have been investing in scanners, but the problem often is that the scanner operator has no capacity to interpret the images on the scanners to look for the ivory that's in the container, potentially hidden away in other commodity groups. So there, there needs to be quite a lot of capacity building in terms of the human capital. And then most importantly, 
you know, you need a, a legal regulatory and policy framework at the national level, across the different agencies, across the different sectors that would facilitate the introduction of an optimal system. And that's quite a challenge. So this system would ensure that data are shared across the different units that need the data, right? That's one of the important aspects of the legal and regulatory framework. Well, what if you go back to my earlier example about the group that's meeting the vessel at the quayside, and now potentially with a digital system that is appropriate, the customs officer wouldn't need to leave his office. He can log into the system. He knows in advance what's coming and what's going to be unloaded off that vessel. He can check that the agent has paid the duty, and then he can push the button to say that consignment is cleared. Of course, that precludes him asking the agent for a small gratuity in order to provide that clearance, which is a benefit, but it potentially it's much quicker if he understands uh, that. Now, to get to that point, you need to have the customs agency and the Port Authority working collaboratively to ensure that the system will allow access to both. For the communication between the vessel and the Port Authority and the vessel and the customs, yes, um, undoubtedly, that data has to be transmitted in a format that will be recognized by the Port Authority and the customs clearance body. And it has to be done to a standard that will allow that vessel to make that same communication in every port to every customs authority on every uh, juncture in its journey, basically, every point of call on its, on its route. I want to go back to something you mentioned about capacity development in human capital. So, yes, uh, Obviously, there will be some training needed, some capacity development needed, both managerial and technical levels. But then there will also be displaced workers, I assume, because as you get more mechanized and more digitalized, I assume that there will be some unemployment, or am I incorrect in that? No, you're absolutely right that um, this is going to be a structural change in the industry, and I don't think in the same way that the introduction of uh, the standardized unit loads, the container, was a structural change in the industry. Prior to that, the ports would hire many thousands of day workers, stevedores, longshoremen, and obviously with container ships and container vessels, the numbers dropped dramatically. Now you have one crane operator who can do the work of you know, 500 men in an hour, basically. Digitalization is going to also lead to some structural changes, particularly when you move further down the path uh, towards greater autonomy or autonomous vehicles. So, you know, rather than having a crane operator now, the crane will be operating automatically. Rather than having somebody driving a straddle carrier or a reach stacker, these are the mobile vehicles that would lift a container for the stacking. That could all be done by autonomous vehicles within the port area because the port area is secure. So the educational requirement, if you like, or the skill level of the port worker on average will go up markedly. And yes, the number of port workers required will go down. I wouldn't say in our countries that, in our client countries, with certain exceptions, that we're there yet. I mean, I think at this end of the spectrum, we're starting to see this in your Antwerp and your Rotterdam, your Shanghai, your Singapore. I think probably over the next 10 or 15 years, you know, we'll see this in Dar es Salaam and, and Cotonou and, and places like this. Yes, I think it's very important to be cognizant that these structural changes could have impacts at the human level as well, in the labor market as well, and to understand that if, we all, if countries also undertake additional investments in efficiency and structural change, then it creates opportunities 
will able to be employed elsewhere. But this is how it is with every structural transformation. Now, you mentioned standardization of documents earlier on, and I guess this is an issue that's related to interoperability of the various systems used by ships and ports, right? So if you have standard, yes, go ahead. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right, Rumina. I mean, the example you, you, we can draw before we move on to the digitalization of the text and the paper-based transactions is one of the reasons that the container has been so successful is it's actually standardized. I mean, with certain exceptions. I mean, we have 20-foot containers, we have 40-foot containers, we have some that are high cubed, you know, a little bit taller, some are refrigerated, but the vast majority fall into the two categories of being 20-foot or 60-foot and can be loaded on a ship in one place and unloaded in another. We know exactly the type of crane we need to load it, and then it can be lifted onto a lorry, which needs no changes, and can be or a train and can go to its um, point of destination. It's the same with, and that, that container can be loaded or unloaded in any port. So the technology is the same everywhere. It's exactly the same with the digitalization aspects. What you need is to ensure that the, the data that is transmitted by the vessel is done to a similar standard in every port, so that every port can re receive exactly the same data, the, the essential data that it needs, and act on it. The, the systems that receive the data don't need to be the same, but the data needs to be conveyed in a manner that can be responded to by each and every port authority. One of the aspects related to this is the software on the land side, of course. You have options between proprietary software and you have options with open source software. Some ports have chosen to go down the proprietary route partly because earlier there was little opportunity to develop open source software. I think for many of our client countries, particularly the, the small island developing states, some of the smaller countries, that those are pretty expensive options. The Port Authority is usually one of the most profitable parastatals. Some form of modular open source system will probably suit them better, as long as that system can receive exactly the same data. Could you talk a bit about increasing cybersecurity risks as we go digital? Yes, and uh, you may have seen in the news relatively recently, we have one of the, the largest uh, container shipping lines in the world, CMA, uh, CGE, a French line based in Paris. Its entire online booking uh, system went down for five days. How much did that cost it? They, as a private company, they're, they're not going to reveal it, but it would have been a I considerable think. amount of money. It's undoubtedly, as with anything, as you move down the digital path, whether it's Wi-Fi in your home, whether it's, it's your home security system, there's a risk. And there's a risk that that system could be breached. And what we're seeing is certainly a significant increase now in the number of cyber attacks. I mean, between February and May of this year, uh, one estimate was a 400% increase. In 2017, Maersk, uh, which is one of the biggest container lines, was subject to an aggressive cyber attack, involved a Trojan, and asked for ransom. And at the time, the ransom wasn't paid, but it certainly led to a significant uh, awakening on their part of the potential risks. And just to give you an indication of the scale of, of the potential intrusions here, at the Port of Los Angeles, which I think it's probably fair to say is one of the leading ports within the world in terms of protecting itself from uh, cybersecurity risks, has about 40,000 cyber incidents a month. Goodness, that's a huge amount, huge number. Yes, yeah. Yes, I see. So I guess the advice to our clients would be as they go towards 
being increasingly digitalized at the same time, it's really important to think about uh, these cybersecurity risks. Now, can you very briefly define what a smart port is? I've heard this term before, but I'm not sure exactly what it means. I wouldn't say that there's a consistent definition. Um, you can look, depending on where you look, you'll find a slight variation. It's the ultimate point in the roadmap that we have laid out uh, together with the International Association of Ports and Harbors in, in the digitalization roadmap. And essentially, we're defining it as a sort of automated port that uses data analytics uh, to make the right business decisions and to run their operations effectively. One would expect a smart port possibly to be run along the manner of that I described earlier. So they will use artificial intelligence. They will use autonomous vehicles. All of the equipment within the port will be connected to the Internet of Things. They will use fifth generation you know, 5G technology to communicate. And potentially, they will have a digital twin where they can manage the port uh, digitally um, through an online twin that, when you see it, is terribly impressive. But I've, I've only actually seen, at the moment, I'm aware of, I think, one port that has a digital twin, and, and that's uh, the Port of Antwerp. What a concept, interesting concept. So thank you. So Martin, that was really quite instructive. And I'm just wondering whether we end, would you like to add anything? I think the only thing I would add right at the end is, um, and we touched on this before, it's that one, the iconic figure of the dock worker, uh, for those of us who, who like old movies, was you know the sort of colorful, muscular Marlon Brando figure in On the Waterfront. And, you know, the 21st century dock worker is going to be very different. And I don't think there is um, awareness of that or the need for that has sunk in in some of the port authorities in our client countries yet, where he's more likely to have a PhD than, than he is to have large biceps. This is a very important point that we're ending on. Actually, I think perhaps you want to mention also the publication that you've recently worked on. Rumin, thank you very much for the reminder. Yes, I do apologize. The publication I referred to in my comments throughout was Accelerating uh, Digitalization, Critical Actions to Strengthen the Resilience of the Maritime Supply Chain. Uh, this was the first in the uh, new Mobility and Transport Connectivity Series, which we prepared jointly with the International Association of Ports and Harbors and was released in, in December last year. And we're now following up, I think, with a subsequent publication specifically on the cybersecurity guidelines for authorities in our countries. Certainly the former is available online and the latter will be when it's released. Thank you very much. And thank you for that information. Thank you very much, Rumi. Pleasure to talk Bye. to you. Bye for now. Yes, it's a pleasure. So listeners, what did we learn today? Well, firstly, we learned that countries could gain substantially by increasing the efficiency of their ports and transparency of their services through digitalization. Secondly, such a transformation will require a number of regulatory changes and better coordination between different public authorities, such as the Customs and Port Authorities. Thirdly, digitalization will go hand-in-hand hand with a lower demand for unskilled workers and a higher one for skilled, educated workers, as of other technological changes. Finally, it's really important that proper cybersecurity measures are adopted as countries digitalize. Losses from successful cyber attacks can be large. That's all for now. Thank you. Until next time. You can find more information about the podcast on worldbank.org forward slash tell me how. 
If you've got questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can also find us on all popular podcasting platforms. This podcast was released in September 2021. Don't forget to subscribe and thanks for listening.